Uh, the middle of the week and plenty to hear from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Not having the skill set is one thing, but not being dressed for the weather, I suppose, is another, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we've even taken people off the hill in Crocs. You're going to ruin Christmas for so many people. Why? Um, Why? You're going to call me a killjoy, of course. No, I'm not. I didn't say that. The reason I'm on to you is because at this time of the year, we enter into what I would call a slaughter fest. So he, he said it. He said, if you are still waiting here, then the person you're waiting for isn't coming back. And the room just erupted in chaos. And in the morning, very low temperatures forecast. On Today with Claire Byrne, Met Aaron's Jerry Murphy. Well, we issue an orange level low temperature ice warning when we expect the temperatures to drop below minus five degrees over a fairly widespread area. And that is what we expect tonight. So it's going to be another extremely cold night. But uh, as I said, because we expect those temperatures to drop below minus five over a wide area, then we issue an orange warning for that. So really, it's um, for 19 counties and it's really more to say what counties aren't in it. Basically, most counties are in it. It's just not at the orange level for Mayo, uh, Sligo and Donegal because there's a little, they're just not quite as cold up in the northwest and also not quite as cold in Dublin, Wicklow, Wexford and Waterford. But nonetheless, these counties are still very cold, but they go into orange when we expect them to go below minus five. Okay, and some extremely low temperatures predicted now for the coming days. I see mention of minus 11. Um, well, some uh, it, it, that's a possibility, but we tend to basically um, there is the possibility of minus eleven. But for for the most part, over tonight it'll be between about minus five and minus ten possible. Like even last night there um, in our own stations, the lowest temperature was minus seven point nine in Mount Dillon and County Roscommon, and up in Castle Derg in Tyrone, it reached minus. 9.7 so that was almost touching the minus 10 mark so there is that possibility of minus 11 but that would be only in one or two spots overall uh, for tonight between minus 5 possibly minus 8 minus 9 and you may get the odd spot that drops even below that and then tomorrow night's going to be another very cold night possibly maybe not just quite as cold but nonetheless still the possibility of an orange warning being issued later on today. And Jerry, what about freezing fog then? We saw a lot of that over the last few days maybe a little less uh, certainly on the east coast today. Is it on the way back? No, the good, there's good news with regard to freezing fog. The air over us at the moment is that little bit drier, which means that while there may be a few patches of freezing fog overall, there, there won't be that widespread blanket of freezing fog that we had in recent uh, days and nights. So the, the, the critical component really is the low temperatures and consequently the ice associated with that. OK, and then for the, the outlook then for the weekend, are we expecting temperatures to, to rise? Uh, gradually so. Uh, now, the, the, during tomorrow night into Friday morning, we will see a band of um, wintry showers pushing into the northwest, uh, more over the the over counties like Derry, Antrim, Tyrone, etc. But if some of them in Donegal as well, and then some wintry showers in the northwest there on Friday. But the temperatures do increase that little bit, which means that whereas at the moment we have daytime temperatures between zero and four, by Friday they get up to between two and six. Saturday another little bit higher than that again, and the proper mild weather comes in on Sunday as a band of rain pushes up from the south. So it would be noticeably mild, become noticeably milder on Sunday with a gradual increase 
on later Friday into Saturday. And uh, then, however, I must point out, though, Claire, that once that mild air does push through, it becomes quite cold again on mon- on Monday, Tuesday. But it's what we'd call more typical cold in that it's got showers coming in off the Atlantic. So it's not the same stagnant, very cold air sitting over us. Okay, you know so I mean. re- respite for Sunday, but maybe back to the cold weather then uh, next week. Yes, but not as cold. Not, not as, as cold. cold. That's good to hear. Jerry Murphy there. And if you've been longingly looking at the hills and mountains in the distance, looking all romantic and snowy, no. Don't do it, and particularly not if you're wearing Crocs. And Ronan Friel from the Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team is on the line. And we heard that warning from Met Aaron Ronan about very low temperatures tonight. And you have a very specific ask of people. Stay away from the Wicklow Mountains if you're not prepared, because you have snow tourists uh, coming there to experience the weather, and some of them may not be very well prepared. Good morning, Claire. Um, yeah, the, the advisory from our team is um, even with 4x4 and winter tyres, um, a lot of the patches and areas, there is zero grip because it's just sheer ice because we haven't had a thaw. So the, pro- the, problem, the problematic areas are, uh, it's just sheet ice. Mm-hmm. So even, even in a 4x4 and thinking that you're in control, it, you have zero grip. And without the likes of snow chains and that, you're just putting yourselves at risk which is drawing out the likes of ourselves or towing companies and you've been out you've had to rescue families uh, we, we go we go out um j- just to bring people off the hill like the car goes into a ditch um we don't want anybody having to walk out in a snow drift or anything like that so yeah we will go up we we pick people up from the cars and then they can get a tow truck to sort the cars at a later stage but uh yes unfortunately we've been out to multiple calls now since the snow has come in mm-hmm. and uh, it's been on uh, people that were driving outside their i suppose scope of uh skill set right yeah and and well not having the skill set is one thing but not being dressed for the weather i suppose is another isn't it yeah, we, we, we've even taken people off the hill in Crocs. So, uh, yeah, not being dressed for the weather is... Uh, is I'm, uh, I'm is laughing, one, but one you know what? We, we, we can all make that mistake. You think, I'll go out for a drive, I'm not going to get out of the car, and then something happens where you get stuck and Absolutely, you end up walking yes. around the Wicklow Mountains in, in Crocs, which are basically like flip-flops. <laughs> yeah, you go out in the car, lovely and warm, and unfortunately when it's in a ditch, you need to get out of it. Right, so you've, you've, <laughs> so, seen, uh, you've seen that, people walking in, in Crocs in the snow. <laughs> we need to drop, drop them at the local village. All right. So listen, the warning is you just want people to, to not do it, not go out um, in the snow as a, as a snow tourist because it's so unpredictable, isn't it? Yeah, we're, like, we're, we're ambassadors of everybody should go out into the mountains and enjoy themselves. But where your car starts to lose grip and where your, your car do, should not be, um, leave it at the side of the road, park into a car park and walk the rest of the way and enjoy the snow that way. Mm-hmm. But bringing your car up to, into an area that's sheet ice is just, um, you're putting yourself and your family in danger. And there are warnings on the roads, aren't there? There are warnings saying this road is impassable or, you know, don't drive this way. But are you finding that people are ignoring them? Yeah, we, we have an agreement with Wicklow County Council and the Gardaí that when the snow comes in and we'll do multiple drives ourselves across the hills and we put out road impassable signs on all areas into it and we even have small standing signs on the road saying road closed. So people are um, just 
bypassing them. They're driving around them. Yeah. See that that must be very frustrating for for you and the team. Uh, it, it can be when you're sitting down to dinner with the family and the, the pager goes off. Mm-hmm. But that's why we're here that we go out rail, rain, hail, sleet or snow uh, to bring people home. Ronan Freel, deputy team leader of the Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team from Today with Claire Byrne. Another Ryan Tuberty show, some crimes against music and a Christmas edition of Assaulting Your Poor Ears. I wonder sometimes when you go to, you know, a school concert, it can often be a bit heavy going because it's just not that good. Do you know that kind of, you have to, when, do you remember, well, I have to, my, to dig deep into my memory going, of course, all the school kids, school concerts were amazing. But you know when they get, they force children to play musical instruments and they're not so hot and you're just thinking, okay, how long is this day going to last? Um... And when an hour can sometimes go on for four hours as you sit down. Because they, they used to have nativity plays. I think they seem to be cancelled. I don't know if people are, everything's gone very um, um, ecumenical. Is that the right word? But either way, they now do like musical services. And yeah, that's fine too, of course. Um, but it seems to like on TikTok and social media, they love to show school services around the place and saying... This is, it, it, sometimes they can be like a massive, you know, like almost like a contraception because <laughs> you just think, oh God, please let this not ever be me. Everybody. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe just a little bit more. Take it to the finish, for the finish. <laughs> and you're kind of going, um, if, no, if, if you've never been at one of those concerts, that's what it is, really, for about an hour, you know? It's like, um, you know, those people who play the flute and, and aren't really good at it? You know, if you take them... I don't know who these jokers are, but they took, obviously, aha, take on me. Now, I, I don't know how much you're going to last with this, but let's just, let's just see what happens. Hang on. Careful now. Careful. Okay, you see, the immature part of me finds this gas because it goes on and on. Okay, so I'll stop now. But if you if, if you want to make your kids laugh later on, or if you think that's funny, if you're immature like me, you're going to really enjoy it. Okay, that's enough. Even I can't take too much more of that. But you get the idea. It's on YouTube. Give yourself, give yourself a laugh. Lovely stuff. Then the text came rolling in. Pity the poor teacher had to listen to all the hours of practice to get the children to that state of quote unquote perfection. And that's in relation to the horror I played a bit earlier on. Chris in Cork says that trumpet piece opened so beautifully. And then it made me laugh so hard I spat my coffee out. When I can't tell you what joy that brings me to know that you spat your coffee out when you listen to something and something peculiar or funny comes on. 
Uh, after those screeches, my cat, says Fiona, who was asleep, awoke, startled. I ran downstairs. It ran downstairs. The cat is now hiding under the table. Good. Uh, I'm dying from the laughter here, says Tracy in Greenhills. I'm the oldest of five. My mother had to contend with five of us playing the tin whistle and the recorder. Christmas was a nightmare for mum. I was not gifted with a singing voice of any description. Not only did mum have to put up with all the whistles and recorders, she had my out of rhythm croaks over the top of it all for the Christmas plays. Yeah, but you did. You stood up and you recounted. It's impressive. But your poor mother, you're right. You've got to send her all the sympathy and empathy and pity for that. And all the teachers who have to listen to that going, you're great, you're great. <laughs> I'm crying into their coffee. From the Ryan Tiverty Show. And on the live line, it wasn't puppy love for Bernie when she called Joe in the afternoon. It happened last night. Bernie O'Reilly. Bernie, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. And what happened? <laughs> this is this is uh, the silly season, so I'm going to keep this quite okay. silly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I went into uh, going into Vicker Street last night to see yeah. the wonderful Soil Arms and Hog. I and agree with you. Great trio, so, yeah. I love them. And... Um, we went for something to eat in the mm-hmm. pub beside us. And just, I didn't know, I walked into the pub and I said, this is great because Thomas Street years ago didn't have the really great pubs and it's now quite trendy and the pub is lovely. Yeah. Sitting down, um, got my burger and chips and <laughs> the next thing there's a dog kind of paw, looking up at me, you know, that yeah. dog look when the you're big, eating food. And I'm kind of going, oh my God, what's going on here? And I just said to the barman, can you please get the dog owner to take the dog away? Okay, now and, the, um, they'll take her time. Was was the dog... No, I'm rushing, I know, I, I talk no, very fast. No, was, was the dog, <laughs> was the dog, had you got those big soppy eyes on him? Yeah, you know, it was a, I think, it, I'm not good at, at the breed, but it was one of those yeah. lovely Bichon dogs. It was a lovely dog. Okay, but he wanted and, his, um, he wanted your well burger. He wanted my, yes, exactly. <laughs> And um, I just thought, I, I'm not a dog hater, I'm not a dog lover. Okay. I just uh, was uncomfortable. I just said to the barman, can you please find the owner? And um, it was kind of nothing really happening. And eventually I just mm. said, look, I really want to try and eat my food. And he said, I don't know who owns the dog, but a woman came came over to us and it was quite, I was with my daughters and we, we were, yeah. look, we have great sense of humour and we were out for a bit of a laugh and the woman came over and nothing wrong with the woman at all. She just took the dog up and said very indignantly, like, well, I'll take you away from the non-dog people. Oh my and God. Very strong and very, but we just laughed. I said, where are we? Where are we? I don't. We, we've moved out of Dublin. Are we back in Dublin changed? Do, do they allow dogs now? But I, again, then I saw another dog and it was oh, a dog I didn't like. One of those bulldogs. Um, yeah. I do, uh, my daughter said, Anya said it was a bull, uh, French uh, bulldog or something. I, I'm not good. But anyway, I didn't like to look at the dog. And my feet are up on the, on the thing. And I'm like, oh, no, let's get out of here. The dog's under the table. Oh, no, please. So we just left. Uh, we did and finish our food, just about finish our food. But well, the funny thing was, I said to the barman on the way out, we actually can't stay here because of the dogs. We actually okay. saw three more dogs. And he just shrugged his shoulders. Nobody was in, um, impolite. Nobody, nothing. We, when we went to the, the pub next door, <laughs> my daughter looked up the Facebook page and she said this. 
and they have advertised that it is silly season and they're inviting everybody with their four-legged friends to come in and they have treats for the dogs. So I'm trying to decide, is this a great marketing ploy or is it ludicrous? For me... Well, it's a well-known, it's, it's a well-known, you're, you could be bang on the marketing. It's a well-known marketing uh, phenomenon that people with dogs have more money. Have more Are money. Are you serious? Generally. Yes. Now, it's St. John, it's called the, John's the Bar and Haberdashery. It's a, jo- yeah, yeah, John's Bar and Haberdashery. And this is what it's they a, say. It's no, it's, it's, dogs aren't just for Christmas in John's Bar and Haberdashery. They say, oh, so this, is on their, oh, this is on their website. Some might argue that dogs are better than people, and we would absolutely agree. So that is why we are a dog-friendly oh. bar. Would you let me finish? What could yes, be better, yes, yes. Bernie? What could be better, Bernie, than a few scoops, a delicious wow burger with your canine companion by your side? Now, the problem with you was that canine companion you'd, you'd never met before in your life. We have dog bowls and doggy biscuits for all the good boys. Well, I'm sure there's girls as well. All the good boys have come to visit us here in John. So it is a dog-friendly pub. But you're saying many dogs, it sounds like it was Shelbourne Park there last night. How many dogs are <laughs> Harold's Cross? How many dogs were there? <laughs> I was sorry. Now this was at about seven o'clock yesterday evening before the show, but I, I think um, there wasn't loads. We we saw about three or four, but the, okay. one is enough for some people. Well, if you saw a greyhound, that means you probably served fast food. Boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. That's Bernie there. Then Thomas called Joe. We're just talking about staying in hotels. You know, pet friendly. Okay. And in Ireland, and obviously we were way down the list of international, you know, rules about that. But many of them have to go through the entire process. It's one pet only per room. One, so, oh, 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 sorry. Yeah. So, in other words, my husband and I, if we were to go to Hotel X, we'd need to get two rooms or two suites. There's only to bring our so, two dogs. And they're ten kilograms each, a bichon and a kind of a mutt. They're quite small dogs. They're very small, t- yeah. And why, why? Why? So they're saying on the one hand we are a dog friendly. Well, actually, uh, they're dog friendly, or the, the dog is the most pet friendly hotel in Ireland. But it's it's like saying we're a child friendly establishment or restaurant, as long as you only have one kid. <laughs> Leave the rest of them at home with the babysitter. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a good analogy. Yeah, that's a good analogy. So, uh, just so did you? Did you with pr- other countries, you know, it's uh, uh, just looking up. We're we're way down the list, obviously, of dog-friendly destinations. Um, but for example, if it's if they're worried about furniture and antiques and soiling and all, um, we, we stayed a few years ago. Just the two of my husband and I we had the dogs with us at the very famous hotel, the Agresco Hotel in Nice, okay. on the Promenade des Anglais. Well, no, now, if you go yeah. to their website, yeah, all dogs are welcome, regardless oh. of size, three or four, whatever. And they have priceless antiques and artwork all over the place there, as you know. Yeah. Well, so suddenly, that's like Irish dogs are kind of more vicious hounds, obviously. But the, what you the know. French treat their dogs better than we do. I was nearly going to say better than their children. Yeah. But the dogs are, there's, there's no, there's no, no, um, countenance of a dog not being allowed into a, exactly, a, a, yeah. a cafe or a restaurant or a beach yeah. Or, uh, yeah okay and and so, so did you did you appeal to the hotel well I did uh, two actually but I, I didn't get a response so I mean we have had like, this is a kind of a new development for us because we can't travel with COVID 
uh, we couldn't travel with COVID and now we can't. Obviously, they don't, they're not accepted on planes, so we're staying put and staycationing. So you wouldn't go just with the one dog? No. Well, well who, who's going to mind? Oh, God, who's going no. to mind you? Oh, God, no. Okay, okay. That's, that's Now, Thomas, have you discovered in Ireland that there's more dog-friendly pubs, as there seems to be, and Bernie has run into one of them, or ran out? Yeah, no, I... I I don't know, but I usually don't frequent pubs, so I don't know, but there are a few I know. Thomas there, then Sandra called Joe. Joe, listen, it's a nightmare. I mean, us dog lovers, I really um, appreciate what the gentleman there before you with his two dogs Thomas, was yeah. talking about. Um, Why? I mean, Lord above. Like, we have two dogs as well. We have a beautiful greyhound and a little Jack Russell. Well, and like that, we wouldn't go anywhere without them. Um, you have a greyhound and a, you have a greyhound and a Jack Russell. And why, why, yeah. why did you get too? Were you afraid of them mating or something? Ah uh, no, Joe. But funny enough, they could mate. Do you know that? What? They've both been neutered and spayed and everything. No, Joe. A I'm Jack Russell you. and a greyhound could mate. Listen, come here to me. Stranger things have happened. With now. a step, what? With a step ladder? With from. a step ladder? A step ladder where there's a will, there's a way, Joe. Where there's a will, there's a way. Now. <laughs> So okay. we be true. I know that's the truth. Okay, take a word. I just the, the image. Oh, I don't think I'll ever get that image out of my head. Oh, sure, I know. I think I my, know, my, Chris, I know. my Christmas is destroyed. Ah, uh, no, Jack the Russell dog, and a Joe. greyhound mating. Come here to me, Joe. Okay, now, worse right. things have happened. Oh, I know. Well, you know, know, it, know it. It. Okay, so tell us. You ring that. You ring the hotel. So you ring the hotel, and you might find that on TripAdvisor or whatever else it might say dog-friendly. Okay. But I think that that was a big thing during the COVID. And then when you might ring the hotel, they'll yeah. say to you, oh, listen, we're not dog-friendly anymore. And my argument would yeah. be, Joe, if you had a choice between a big stag or a hen party and a family yeah. with a dog or two dogs, even a Jack Pet Russell dog, and, yeah. a, and a greyhound, what well, yeah. would you rather have in the hotel room now, Joe, be honest? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you imagine the state that the stag or the hen might leave the room yeah, in. Yeah, but the stag and the hen are paying money. The dog isn't. <laughs> ah, for the love of God, Joe. But sure, the family are. Ah, but you pay a bit extra. Do you know what I mean? So has it, happened to you, has it happened to you, Sandra, that you, you rang a, a hotel where you saw on the website Dog Friendly and did they say to you, like, we have, we have our quota of dogs? No, 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 not at all. They've changed the policy, you see. They've changed the policy. Did they say um, why? Did they have a... Oh, I don't know. I didn't ask now, Joe. I didn't ask. But they just said, unfortunately, we haven't updated that. We're not dog-friendly anymore. Oh, God. And yeah, what, I know. And when you when you plead with them and lead with them, do you get anywhere? Ah, uh, no, Joe, I wouldn't be doing that. Would you because not know? that first lady you there, be, you know, you wouldn't be like a beg, you wouldn't be like a begging dog, no. Ah, God, no, Joe, I wouldn't be up <laughs> now with me two paws looking for a pet now, Joe, not a dog. No, 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 no. Say like that poor lady there, the first lady, she was terrified. Anyhow, of the dog she's none the she better. Her burger and everything. She's so, really, yeah. She's she's like. She's, like I felt sorry for her in a way. Yeah. Like another part of me felt like, you know, the love of divine. I, I know, you know, but, you know, fair juice. Well, let me bring she Liz. Let, Liz, yeah, but Bernie, part of your problem, Bernie, is that those dogs uh, weren't on the lead in that pub. Ah, well, no, I understand that. And they're not her dogs and they're going over looking for food. I mean, I don't yeah. agree with that now, Joe. No, I do not. That's Sandra on the live line with Joe Duffy. 
And on Today with Claire Byrne, business journalist Adam Maguire was looking at the Christmas bounce for Irish businesses. We're in what's often referred to by retailers as the, the golden quarter, the, the three months from October to December when they, they do a huge amount of, of their business. According to Retail Excellence Ireland, somewhere in the region of €5 billion Euro is going to be spent in shops during December alone. That's out of a total annual retail spend of about €30 billion. Euro. So you're talking about cut the guts of 17% of sales in in time. one month but of course for many and especially this year the Christmas shopping season starts before December so if you extend it out a little bit and, and bring in the end of, of November and, and Black Friday you're probably looking at somewhere north of 20% of, of the money that a retailer takes in in a year going through the, the, the tills and the cash machines and card machines all over maybe a six week period so so huge amount and when you're talking about a sector that deals often very slim margins it's really make or break for them it can, it can be the, the the difference between profit and, and loss and one of the claimed although it is disputed one of the claimed origins of the term Black Friday is that you know post Thanksgiving Thanksgiving sales were when American retailers went from the red to the black and that's why, why they call it Black, black Friday. Friday Now when you look at who's getting this bounce it depends on what you're selling right? Yeah really yeah it does depends from shop to shop it'll differ so unsurprisingly toy shops do an incredible amount of their business at, at this time of year Toy Industries Ireland which is a kind of a pan-European lobby group for the toy industry which I didn't know existed until a couple of days ago <laughs> uh, it, it says that in some countries Christmas uh, accounts for as much as 60% of the annual revenue of, of a toy shop so absolutely massive uh, but really it's not just toys anything that's kind of giftable goods uh, will, will do well at this time of year so it's, it's a good time for book publishers and in turn bookshops jewellery shops do well department stores as well uh, pharmacies are another um, retailer that do quite well at this time of year because a lot of them now offer hampers and gift sets and perfumes in addition to, to the normal medicines that they sell and I'm told that clothing shops can do well but it depends on the type of clothing shop the market they're selling to uh, those that might be known for occasion wear are probably going to do particularly well this mm-hmm. year that's a market that pretty much disappeared to, for the last two Christmases because people weren't socialising but it's expected to, to bounce back quite strongly this year. Yeah, I wonder what they do though with all of that sequined stock on the 1st of January because some of the other shops that you mentioned, you might be able to sell hampers or perfume or toys in January quite yeah. easily. Or, or, yeah, or it might keep for a couple of months. Yeah. You know, it's not the kind of stuff, but yeah. Sequined dress? No, you're selling that off. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, putting it into storage for a year. So outside of those businesses then that you mentioned, what are the other types of businesses that do well? Well, it's, it's a good time for a lot of the, the kind of services and hospitality sectors of the economy. So, so the pubs are an obvious example of that. The, the Licensed Vintners Association told me that December is by far the most important month for its members. Revenues are usually two to three times what they'd see in an average month. So really, really big. Uh, and with no COVID restrictions this year, they're expecting things to be back to where they were in 2019. Interestingly, though, depending on where your pub is will actually dictate what kind of trade you see and when you see that benefit. Mm So if you take an urban area, for example, the city centre pubs are likely to benefit at the start of December. People going in for work dues, maybe they're in shopping and they pop in then for a drink or or a bite to eat after after doing that. But as we get closer to Christmas, the trade shifts then out to the suburban areas. So people still want to go out, but they don't go all the way into town and they they want to stay kind of closer to home. Uh, And and so it picks up there. And, And that boom in demand runs all the way through then to the new year. But the problem is that almost overnight it goes from the best time of year for for a pub to the worst time because January is is a terrible month for the pub trade you know people are 
maybe a bit strapped for cash after their festive excesses. There might be a few New Year's resolutions or dry January pledges thrown in. So it's a very lean month, January, for, for pubs. So it's kind of like hibernation. They stock up in December in order to get through what's going to be a difficult start okay. to the year. So you need to make it in December to get through January. Exactly. And it's similar for retailers as well. January tends to be a bit quieter for them too. And, and what they are selling is probably at a discount. It's probably in a January sale, so they're not making as much as well. So that, that is a common trend that it's a boom in December, but it kind of tails off a bit then in the okay. start of Same the next then year. Same then for rest. Yeah, absolutely. They, they expect to be facing a difficult start to next year, particularly given the current energy and cost of living crisis. But the, the Restaurants Association of Ireland says that it is seeing a pickup in sales so far for Christmas uh, this year, uh, which, which they welcome. They say it's particularly notable at the higher end of the market, customers trading up on kind of extras like wine and things like that, which I suppose is a bit of anecdotal evidence to how the, the cost of living crisis is hitting people differently. Some people aren't really feeling it, whereas others are, are feeling it quite a lot. Um, they're also seeing a bit more spending on the corporate credit cards. Say that that's actually up uh, on 2019. Perhaps a bit of pent up desire by by employers to to treat staff or even clients in a way that they weren't able to do for the last two years. And what about the businesses that rely completely on Christmas? Yeah, I was trying to think of a few examples. The obvious one that springs to mind are Christmas tree growers. Uh, apparently, somewhere in the region, half a million Christmas trees are grown in Ireland uh, for sale each year. Uh, the market is worth about twenty one million euro, and. Uh, it's not just the growers that benefit from that. You also have the retailers. You have you know people who transport them. I've heard of some companies that will bring the tree to your house and then take it away when you're finished as well. So all these little ancillary businesses that benefit from that trade. But for many Christmas tree growers, it's it's their main or maybe their only source of revenue for the whole year. So they ha- basically make their money over a four, six week period leading up to Christmas. And then they have to budget that out to cover them for the next what, 46 weeks, basically. Yeah. And considering it takes 10 years plus to grow a tree for sale, it's it's a lot of time and a lot of effort that you have to spread that money out to make sure that you can keep the business going. Before you get it back. And the businesses then that don't do so well this time of year. Yeah, there's a fair few of them. I did say retail does well this time of year, but it does depend. So certain retailers will not do so well. Uh, for example, furniture shops don't do much trade at this time of year. They will be busy fulfilling orders, but they're orders that were made maybe a couple of weeks or even a couple of months ago and are only getting kind of processed and fulfilled. Now, there aren't too many people going to a shop to buy a suite of furniture or a dining table Mm. a week or two before Christmas, in part because they know they're not going to have it in time for Christmas and they may as well wait for the January sales and maybe get a a better price instead. Similar hardware sales, certain types of furnishings like flooring don't do too well. Again, you're not going to be, you might be doing a little bit of a, a, you know, freshen up in the house, but you're not going to be doing a major job unless you absolutely have to. So that trade tends to tail off. DIY shops do kind of cover that by selling a lot of Christmas decorations and all the paraphernalia so you know they, they, they're not quiet but they're not selling certain types of products uh, and another one that you might think about opticians don't tend to do too well this time of year again unless you really have to you're not going to be too bothered going to your opticians I'll wait until the new year and I'll do that then you know so. <laughs> consider opticians yeah, think you of go. your optician quiet, this quiet. December yeah quiet one for your opticians <laughs> and other parts then of the economy that go quiet yeah well I suppose similar to the furniture and the DIY any real big ticket items tend to cool off uh, during December so you're not likely to go out and buy a new fridge or a dishwasher in December. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, 10 years on from the Sandy Hook massacre, Sean Whelan's moving report. Today is the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook school shooting in Connecticut in the United States. It was one of the worst acts of mass murder in the US. 20 primary school children and six school workers were shot dead by a 20-year-old man who had earlier killed his mother. She owned the firearms that he used in the attack. 
but it took another 10 years and a similar school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, before America began to change its gun laws. Our Washington correspondent Sean Whelan reports. He plays the guitar gently at the end of the vigil as the crowds file out, extinguishing their candles as they leave. It's the tenth time they've gathered to remember. Sandy Hook School, I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School. There's still shooting going on, please. Sandy Hook, 20 little children and six teachers gunned down in their classrooms by a 20-year-old with an assault rifle. One of them was seven-year-old Daniel, the son of Mark Barden, the man on the guitar. This is the first time uh, we've been able to attend the vigil. Coming into 10 years now from, from the tragedy that took our Daniel from us, it's, it's hard to imagine. You know, time is kind of all warped. It feels like he's still with us. It feels like um, he'll always be seven. And he's supposed to be 17 right now. And it's just, it, that brings with it um, so much emotional weight. All's quiet now in Sandy Hook. A new school stands there. And just last month, a new memorial opened, a circular pond amidst the New England trees. Nicole Hockley, mother of Dylan, relives the moment she and a dwindling band of parents who had gone to the school to find their children that day, 10 years ago, met the governor of Connecticut. People started saying, tell us what's happening. What's, what's going on? Because we still had had really no information. Clearly, he was clear to me he was frustrated he, that we hadn't been told. And so he, he said it. He said, if you are still waiting here, then the person you're waiting for isn't coming back. And the room just erupted in chaos. Even in a country with such a huge gun death toll as America, this was a uniquely awful event. President Obama almost breaking with emotion as he spoke in the White House press room. Beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Surely there would be gun control. Surely this was the breaking point for the power of the gun lobby. But no, the lobby got stronger, gun sales soared, and the parents of the murdered children, they got Alex Jones. The whole thing is a giant hoax. And the problem is, how do you deal with a total hoax? I mean, just how do you even convince the public something's a total hoax? The conspiracy theorists spread the lie that Sandy Hook was staged as part of a government effort to take guns off Americans. It was only stopped this summer when courts awarded the parents almost $1.5 billion in damages against Jones. According to surveys, around a quarter of Americans believed Sandy Hook was a government hoax. Not true, but the smokescreen helped hide political inaction. Perhaps the most bitter disappointment of my time in office was the utter failure of Congress to respond in the immediate aftermath of the Sandy Hook shootings. Barack Obama at a fundraiser for the Sandy Hook Promise organization last week. Founded by parents like Mark and Nicole, it promotes school safety now while working for gun law reform over time. The good news is that of late I've sensed that slowly, steadily, the tide may be turning. Because, of course, Sandy Hook was not unique. My name is Jasmine Caceres, 
And six months ago, my little sister, Jackie Gossetis, was nine years old when an 18-year-old with an AR-15 walked into her classroom and killed her at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Uvalde. We're back at St. Mark's Episcopal Church, a red brick building behind the Library of Congress on Capitol Hill. And the vigil that started out for Sandy Hook is now a national event, drawing people from all across the United States to remember their loved ones who died by the gun. Garnell Whitfield, I'm from Buffalo, New York. 18-year-old uh, white supremacist walked in with uh, full uh, combat gear on with an AR-15 rifle with a modified clip um, and killed 10 people. My mother was the fourth victim. Dozens of people carrying pictures queued up to mark gun deaths across the nation. This is Matt Floravina, the light of my life. This is Kara Christensen, and um, Matt is also my nephew. And Kara is our goddaughter, and she uh, died by suicide by gun. And one of the children of Sandy Hook who survived, Jackie Haggerty, now aged 17. That day I survived because the shooter armed with an AR-15 chose left instead of right in that hallway. She got to introduce a special guest. It is my privilege to introduce President Joe Biden, our gun safety champion. Ten years ago, this nation's vigil was created here in Washington to pray for the souls of Sandy Hook and their families. Ever since this, that time, this church has been opened its doors to more victims and more families of a violence that rips at the very soul, at the very soul of this nation. And it keeps ripping the soul of the nation. This year has seen shooting incidents in American schools hit an all-time high, 291 by the start of this month. Paul Sampleton, Jr., 14-year-old from Grayson, Georgia. Gunfire is now the biggest killer of children in America, averaging five a day. My sister Wendy Gibson, suicide with gun. My son Galen Gibson, death in a school shooting. Uvalde came 10 years after Sandy Hook. On December 14th, 2012, I was a second grader at Sandy Hook Elementary School when a gunman equipped with an AR-15 shot into our school and took the lives of 26 beautiful, innocent souls. In that period, 279 more lives have been lost in school shootings. The vigils will continue. Remembering Sandy Hook 10 years on, Sean Whelan's report for Morning Ireland. Lieutenant General Sean Clancy is the Chief of Staff of the Irish Defence Forces since September 2021. So, after a year in the role, he popped into studio to talk to Ryan Tuberty about public service, the pride of being Irish and his family background. I'd love to know a bit about you and your family. Where were you born and was it a big family and give us a sense of who you are. Um, yeah, I was. I am actually from a big family. I was born uh, in Mitchellstown, North, North Cork. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm a Cork man. And um, there was eight, eight, eight of us in the family, a large family. My mum was a hairdresser. My father was a, a teacher. Um, we, you know, I suppose the values that were in, in, imbued in us 
growing up have stuck with me throughout my service. Yes. They're very similar to the values we have as a, as a society as a whole. Uh, they're certainly embedded in us in the Defence Forces as well and through my career. Um, I went to school like everybody else. I, I went to St. Lannan's and Ennis for my last two years and it's through conversations with people that were connected to the Defence Forces. I got to learn about the Defence Force. Never been in an aircraft actually before I applied to be an Air Corps cadet. At the age of? At the age of 18. Right. Never. Those were the days, you know. You went yeah. by ferry and boat to the UK and that was about as far as your holidays and boats, and boats yes, and yeah. summer camps and that. But... Uh, so during the summer after applying, I went off and got a few flying lessons and uh, said, this isn't a bad little thing at all. And, 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 I, and I just got into the sort of by happen chance, fell into the, to the Air Corps and the Defence Forces. And I've been there since. And had you dreamt even as a little boy of flying or did you have an interest in the sky and planes or space or, or did that just come about more um, organically? Than it, that? it came more organically. I, I, I had no obsession with flying. I mean, flying was yeah. something that others did. People came home from the United States by air and <laughs> that was the way they did you know, our diaspora came home yeah. by aircraft yes. back in the in the seventies, the late the, the seventies and early eighties, and that that was just it. And if you recall, it was very expensive to fly in those days yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was true that, and you know, I said the career. You know, there was a lot in, in the eighties. It was you know, it was civil service, it was banks, it was all of those teaching, it was those traditional careers that we were all, you know, that we looked at. And this was an unusual one for my family. Most went to college or went off to education. My father was an educator, of course. My mother was also a very strong educator, yes. hugely powerful and uh, you know I, I have wonderful siblings I have a great wife and children now myself of course uh, which I'm very proud of as well and uh, it was through that I suppose that I, I developed my career and throughout my career then in uh, in the defence forces I suppose I, I've grown in terms of my leadership I've, I've grown in terms of my skills my competence and you know got the opportunity of, of great um, uh, you know, opportunities, great opportunities in the Defence Forces to grow and to develop personally, yes. but as well in my own leadership. And I suppose at different points in my career then I just, you know, I, that, I, I got that hook into staying because I got that sense of service. It isn't something that comes automatically. I think it's something that you grow with the organisation in your career. Yeah, and that's what happened, I let, think, overall. Let's talk about that for a second. I, I'm fascinated by the idea of public service. I come from a family that, that uh, would, through generations, believe in the idea of that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where you want to give something back. That sounds um, probably saccharine to a lot of people, but I think that it, it's something that is... It's it's underestimated. People have become very cynical about the notion of public service, whether you're a politician or whatever role it might be, or in the army and whatever. And yet, it's it's imbued in you in some way. What does it mean? What does public service look like? What does it mean? And how can you decynicize people about the idea that you're really just in it for yourself, or one is in it for oneself? I think it comes down to understanding, uh, Ryan. Mm. Um, an understanding of what you're doing has value. Um, that it's. Um, it's less less than ordinary, if I can put it that way. It allows you to be more. It, it I suppose, it, it transcends um, the financial factor. It transcends the just the doing. It kind of it enables you to give to others, and at greater good, I think, in a greater sense, is about giving to the state because the state represents all of us. Yeah. Uh, this is my, you know, my, this is what's built in me. Um, there were times in my career where we've had challenging points. Uh, where we have low points, where we lost people in service when they were doing their job. You get a great sense of fulfilment, in particularly, you know, I was in search and rescue, others were in bomb disposal, other in other areas that are necessary for a democratic society to survive, to be sustained. And we see that right across the public and civil service in terms of, you see it now in terms of the beneficiaries of temporary provisions when the Department of Children are giving so, you know, 
so hugely in terms of delivery. Mm. You see it in the social welfare side, people, you know, honest civil servants doing their best for people that they come in and meet every day. You see the soldiers, sailors and air crew over the defence forces. I mean, we all saw it in reality, I suppose, in the sense that somebody in the country inevitably got a needle stuck in their shoulder or a swab stuck down their throat by somebody in a military uniform in a defence forces. And when the country and the state needs people, they look to the arms of the state. They look to the police force, they look to the Oglignair uh, and um, the defence forces, they look to our public and civil service to support them. And in a democratic society, we have an expectation mm-hmm. that the state will provide certain elements and it lets itself down. And we all are challenged in that way because there are weaknesses in our systems. But if we acknowledge those weaknesses and we are constantly trying to improve and better them. And to drive, for me, the drive is always trying to improve to be better. And that's our goal in the Defence Forces. We're supported hugely by our Minister. My Secretary-General, Jackie McCrum, has a wonderful support. And we're trying to transform and make better our Defence Forces today for the people today and for the, for the state for tomorrow. And Ryan spoke about celebrating the Irish flag. When I walk down the local pier near where I live, I see sometimes the Irish flag billowing in the wind. And mm. I do get a shot of joy in my heart. Yeah. I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but I do. I'm, I'm proud Irishman, whatever. But I do think in the 70s and 80s, in some ways, when I was a kid, for the most part of it, um, the Irish flag kind of went missing. You couldn't really wrap yourself around it. You couldn't really have it flying in your garden if you wanted to, like an American could. Um, do you think it went missing for a little while? And, and are we, yeah. is, it back in, is it back in action again? Look, there's no question about it. One of the darker periods, I think, of the last hundred years for Oakley Nahern and the state has been the period of the Troubles of the 70s and 80s. Um, but I think in 2016 was a changing point. You know, in that year, we, if you like, we retook ownership of our flag. Um, in what way? In what way? I mean, in you know, under Oglick Nahern and, and, and the Kenny, for instance, at that time, we took a very deliberate strategy of going to every school in the country, putting the uniform alongside the flag, delivering it to inculcate into the next generation what it means and what the Irish flag is about. And I think through that, it kind of mushroomed into the wider society. It gave that 1916-2016 connection and that deliberate connection to our flag, which is so, so important. You know, a flag that was born out of Waterford, if you like, its, origi- right. its origins, and, uh, you know, that's, that will be celebrated early next year. And when we move into that space since, we've been very deliberate as a state. Um, and Andy Kenny was the Taoiseach at that time. He was very much an advocate for reclaiming the flag. Another and former think, teacher. And... and, and and that's what I think we did. Yeah. No, we never lost the flag, except we weren't overt about how we were proud of our flag. And I think the next generations have certainly got a sense of that flag without the baggage, if you like, of what happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s in this mm-hmm. state. And we're still on a very fragile piece, of course. We still have to work hard as a society for it and we'll continue to support it and do whatever we can to promote it, which is very vitally important amongst all society, of all parts of our society. Um in Ireland. Um, let me ask you quickly about the state of the armed forces and again this is a view from the couch so it's not very yeah. informed but yeah, from talking to one or two people in the forces that there's a sense that it's it's uh, underfunded um, could do with uh, more state funding or whatever you want to call it. Is, is that your contention or do you feel all is well in the, in the, in the house? 
Well, I think maybe 12 months ago, if you asked me that question, I'd give you a different answer. Is that right? So yeah, it's improved. I, I, it has improved. We're, we're in a very difficult position at the moment in terms of our numbers, in terms of our recruitment. We're challenged in, in, a, in, in an environment that is, that is a full employment. So but just to a cut commission, across very, sorry, very, very, yeah, very, sorry, no, I'm being rude here, but no, just no, to, to, for people going, what does that mean? Um, it says, it, it, from my information, you're the, arguably at the lowest strength in, in a long time, maybe decades, 8,100 personnel where you should be at 9,500 and the Commission on the Defence Forces recommends 11,500. So that, do those figures tally? They do. And and they, is that a source that, that of is, disappointment for you? or th- That's an accurate information analysis you have, Ryan, and they do tally those figures. Um, the Commission of Defence Forces reported last year and that's why I'm more optimistic and more hopeful right now okay. because we're energised by that Commission report. We're energised by the fact that the government have gone in straight behind it and supported by the fact that we have a hugely involved and engaged minister who has supported us. The government have come out and put their money, if you like, yeah. where their mouth is okay. because they have funded us to the level of two ambition that's set out in the Commission and to what the ambition was. We're, we're an organisation that needs to build the, uh, the capacity to absorb additional funding, but they, there has been a commitment to multi-annual funding uh, and increasing it by 50% of our current funding, which is an extraordinary milestone, if you like, okay. from so government. A, you feel it in a good so place. So I feel we're in a good place and we will turn around our retention uh, and our recruitment, which is one of the greatest challenges and which we are very much focused on, in particular going into 2023. If we can turn that ship around gently and get to a growth pattern, I think I'm very confident that we can get back and grow the organisation out towards 2028 to 2030, which is my ambition. You have uh, two daughters and a son. I have. Uh, it's, it's a son with an interesting name, but we won't get into that detail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ryan. <laughs> and two daughters like myself. Um, and that, the reason I'm pointing that out is because when the group called that called themselves Women of Honour came to approach you yes. and the, the force is generally just saying, look, conditions, room, there's, there's room to improve here and all, yeah. all of the rest of that. Did you, uh, how did you approach that? How did you feel about that? And do you think you're making the right noises in that regard? And, or not just noises, but actually doing the right thing? Yeah, I think we are doing the right thing. You know, I, I'm I'm hugely focused on ensuring that we have an environment that creates, that is respectful, uh, that treats people with dignity mm-hmm. and that we have a duty of care to them. You know, I, I have not shied away from the historical issues and the current issues in terms of our behaviours and culture within the organisation. We have made huge strides in the last 12 months. We have an independent review group that are going to report by the end of the year to the minister. We will embrace that report and the challenges that would present to us as an organisation. But we are very focused on building a better and continuing to build a better cultural and behavioural organisation. Let me say as well, though, you know, it is important to the men and women of Oglignaheron today that the majority of those come to work every day, receive dignity, receive respect, give give dignity and respect to all of their colleagues and friends. There are those in the organisation that do not do that. Uh, why, either why, deliberately or undeliberately. Why are they still there? It, well, it is, a qu- it is a question of reporting. It's a question mm. of finding out. It's mm-hmm. a question of doing all of that and just okay. changing it. And some of them do it and, and don't realise they're even doing it. Right. And that's part of the whole cultural issue and the behavioural issue. But we're, as long as I'm chi- Chief of Staff, let me assure you that I will be determined to ensure that we create that environment where people, everybody in our organisation, irrespective of gender or any other religious beliefs, ethnicity, whatever it is, they're treated with respect, 
and that they look forward to coming to work and they enjoy their work because we are a joyful place to work. We're, we, we have such opportunities to anybody that wants to join Uncle Karen today. Lieutenant General Sean Clancy from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the afternoon, Joe had this question for caller Jerry. You're going to ruin Christmas for so many people. Why? Um, Why? You're going to call me a killjoy, of course. No, I'm not. I'm not, I didn't say that. I just said you're going I know to... you didn't. Yeah. What's, um, what's well, the problem? What's the problem with turkeys? Why are you... Um, there's no problem with turkeys, Joe. I suppose the reason I'm on to you is because at this time of the year, beginning around the end of November and going okay. right through probably before that, yeah. we enter into what I would call a slaughter fest. Oh, of, you know, around the world, you know, globally billions of animals and we do the same here and we do that to celebrate a season of peace and goodwill and it has always struck me since I became vegetarian and then vegan, it has always struck me as a bizarre way to celebrate what is essentially a season of peace and goodwill and I think most people kind of understand that but because mm-hmm. meat and turkeys and the tradition of turkey at Christmas is so embedded in our culture that you know everything goes out the window even people because who might feel nice. uncomfortable because people hmm? because it's nice it's tasty well, it's, of course it's nice it's I didn't eat peas and turkey we're, we're told it's healthy of all the meats and the poultry turkey is up there well I didn't give up eating animals because I didn't like the taste of them Joe I gave up okay. eating them a long, long time ago because two things happened around the same time. One, I discovered that a lot of the aspects of animal agriculture were pretty horrendous, mainly factory farming. And two, around the same time, I realised that I didn't have to eat animals to to live. And, you know, 35 years later, you know, I haven't been complicit in the killing of any animal. And I suppose mm. I've, I'm happy about that. And I've, I'm extremely healthy and um, I eat, uh, you know, incredibly tasty food and very creative foods, you know. And so I suppose that's my... And what will you my, have on Christmas have Day? Um, well, I'm not, doing the, uh, I'm not doing the cooking this Christmas, okay. so I'm, I'm going visiting. So okay. it's up to do... But there's a, you know, there's a... There's a but there's loads of tasty... There's a, but there's loads of tasty alternatives. That's fine, isn't there? There's loads of gorgeous alternatives. But sure, all of your listeners, Joe, would be aware of what's happened in the last couple of years in relation to the phenomenal growth in veganism. So you only have to walk into a supermarket mm. and see the vast range of foods there. That's Jerry on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, concentrate. This is the science bit, a 101 in nuclear fusion energy. Scientists in the United States yesterday confirmed this major breakthrough in nuclear fusion that could pave the way for near limitless clean energy in the future. Well, that's the promise. And researchers at the U.S. National Ignition Facility in California confirmed that they've overcome a major barrier, producing more energy from a fusion experiment than was put in. And physicists have pursued that technology for decades. But some experts say there's still a long way to go before fusion can power homes. Well, to talk a little bit more about this, I'm joined on the line by Dr. Paul Cosgrove, who's researcher at the Nuclear Energy Group at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Cosgrove, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning. Thanks for having me. When we heard about this, some reports said, in an effort to explain it, that it's an imitation of how the sun and other stars create energy. Is that on the money and can you expand on that for us? Yes, um, pretty much. A few wee differences, but um, the main thing is that nuclear fusion is um, the process of releasing energy by bringing 
small atoms together under under very extreme conditions and they, they fuse together, they release energy. This is as opposed to nuclear fission where you have a big atom and you split it apart and release energy. Um, in, uh, at NIF in the US, they bring these atoms close together by having these little tiny fuel pellets, which are about two millimeters in diameter, very small, and they fire a very large laser at it to sort of compress it and heat it up from all sides. And this, uh, yeah, this can induce fusion, this can cause fusion to happen. And how long has this work been ongoing to try and replicate this, uh, this action, this fusion? Um, it's been going for a long time. So I remember when I was in high school, NIF was in my textbook at least. So, um, yeah, a, a few decades anyway. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of what was said yesterday and, and the hopes around it? So I think it's very certainly a scientific breakthrough. You know, they, um, they, they got this sort of ignition. They got more energy out than they put in. However, this is some uh, inventive accounting <laughs> because how they, how they count the energy they put in is there's this laser, as I say, they fire, and the light of the laser you know, uh, hits this pellet and that is the energy going into the pellet and then the pellet will produce some energy coming out. However, actually running those lasers, the big machines that produce that little pulse of light is 100 times more energy than came out of the pellet. So there's sort of a a scientific definition of of, um, break-even that they talk about and then there's more of an engineering definition of break-even. So I would say they've got a a long way to go yet oh. to, to hit that. I'm devastated. You've poured cold water on this for us now, Paul. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I don't like to be a pessimist. <laughs> but, uh... but but is that the reality, that if we're looking at, you know, this claim of near limitless clean, clean energy, that that's not what this is then? I would say um, it's, it's not. Um, well, one aspect of it is that even if it was limitless clean energy, uh, limitless doesn't necessarily mean cheap. An analogy that a, a friend told me was that you could get limitless uh, air conditioning by transporting blocks of methane from Pluto, but um, it's probably not the most economical way to do it. Mm-hmm. And with this device, it's a very complicated device already just to, to get a little bit of energy um, in one little burst once a day from this pellet, but to make this into uh, a power station you would need to do this many, many times very quickly. You would need to make it much more reliable. And you know, maybe with enough effort, that could be done. But it would be a lot of effort, and it would probably be more expensive than other sources of clean energy, like nuclear fission, for example. Dr. Paul Cosgrave from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.